You know, client-side Blazor should be baked by May, according to Microsoft. Now's the time to jump into server-side Blazor so you'll be ready. Spend an entire day with me building a real app, complete with components, API controllers, authentication and authorization, JavaScript, Interop, and SignalR. The next classes are this Monday, December 16th, and again on Friday, January 3rd. If you can't make either of those dates but still want to learn, you can purchase the materials, which guide you step-by-step -step with text, screenshots, and code that you can copy and paste. You also get an eight-hour screen video from the last workshop, so you can follow along at your own pace. Go to blazer.appvnext.com and get the goods. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And buddy, I went to the casino last night with Kelly. And you won a fortune. Well, not a fortune, but you know, it had a good night. Like, had okay. a good stroke of luck. And we, we just play like nickel slot machines. Oh, okay. Like literally just playing straight probability. Low stakes probability. Just like to have fun, you know. And uh, yeah, it was a fun night. So I'm a little groggy. You can hear it in oh. my voice. My voice is a little casinoed out, you know? <laughs> it's loud, right? It's, it's loud and loud they there. smoke in there and I'm not used to yeah. it. And, ah. So anyway, how you been? I've been good, you know? We're getting ready for Christmas, doing all the things. I've got uh, I've got an advent calendar for Run As Radio going right now. So, what? You know, December 1st to 25th, I'm, I'm putting out a, a link to a show that was published on that day. In December, some year in the past. What? And That's sort of crazy. telling a little story about the show. And, you know, it's what was really funny is, so, you know, I plucked 25 shows. Now, a few of them are the Wednesday shows, which are new, but the rest of them are older than that. And for every one of those shows, I could tell you a story about it. Like wow. in some way, maybe something that's happened with the technology, something that happened with that person. Like, so it's been really fun for me, but uh, people really are cool. amused. That's really cool. I mean, my experience of you in advent calendars is entirely different than that. Yes. There, there are many kinds of advent calendars <laughs> in the world. <laughs> and for those who don't know, Richard uh, usually gets me this Christmas advent calendar of whiskey mm -hmm. and behind every behind day. Behind each door. There's a dram of whiskey of some different type, and it's all scotch. <laughs> it is. And very tasty. Very tasty. Uh, that should be my better know framework, but it isn't. Oh. No, it's not. So let's roll the music, and I'll tell you what I'm talking about today. Awesome. <laughs> all right, dude, what do you got? All right, today I got a little uh, tip that... I learned just by, you know, accident working on my Blazor workshop. Oh. Yeah. So when you're making a component, which is what Blazor is all about, you make these components and drop them in to your, to your uh, markup and the, the, all the codes in C sharp. But when you, you can pass parameters to them, just like properties that get initialized, you know, when, when you're, uh, instantiating your page and they can be collections of course they can be objects they can be strings whatever these parameters are they can be other components right okay yeah so the problem though is that when the then the component updates those parameters you don't see those updates 
in the host page. Hmm. It's like I notify property changed all over again. <laughs> you need. You're now, talking old framework references now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing is, is that it's the the fix isn't as complex as I notify property changed is like where you have to every single property, but it is kind of yeah. complex. Basically, what you have to do is create a uh, an event handler in your component and consume that event in the host, and then anytime you want the change to occur in the host, you know, the host to be updated, you call this event, doesn't have to have, you know, you don't have to pass anything. Right. In the host, you have to do this magic thing uh, that essentially uh, notifies the page that something has changed. It's called state has changed. You just call state has changed. And then everything magically works. So I wrote a blog post about this. And I have uh, some code out there that you can just copy and paste. And it's at notify.appvnext.com. So if that's of interest to you, uh, if you're doing any kind of Blazor development, it might be of interest to you. So go to notify.appvnext.com, grab the code, and Bob's your uncle. So, yeah, who's talking to us today, Richard? We ended up Python show in a while, so I was digging around a bit. And I found a comment on show 1199. Whoa. So this is from October of 2015. Like I said, it's been a while. And that's when Kathleen Dollard talked to us about programming in Python. She's oh, yeah. one of our favoriteest programmers in the world. So whenever she wants to talk about programming, we want to listen, right? Absolutely. And it got a ton of great comments. And admittedly, these are four years ago. But uh, really an interesting conversation just about Python and so forth going on. And I love this one from Pete Smith. He says, hello, Carl and Richard. Thanks for the excellent show. Really appreciate your enthusiasm and curiosity about all manner of topics. Yeah. I'm a CAD operator in the architectural and structural engineering firms and a hobbyist programmer. Iron Python, because of course we talked about Iron Python, mm-hmm. has been tremendously useful in my job because I can drop into Python REPL in AutoCAD because AutoCAD has Python as a scripting language. And sometimes compress a half hour of work down to just a few lines of code. Mm. One of the announcements from the last PyCon, admittedly, this would be like the last PyCon in 2015, yeah. uh, was that static type annotations are going to be added to the language. They found that Google and other large companies are starting to roll their own solutions, and the core Python team wants to standardize on something. Wow, this sounds like familiar problems, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. You, when you build a popular language, people just start building their own stuff on it? Yeah. The idea is that different tools like linters and IDEs could all use type annotations. And the C Python interpreter and PyPy, the JITED implementation of Python, could also use these type annotations to leverage p- different optimizations. Hearing this violated my mental model and they're, that they're either static or dynamic languages. Most Python users see duck typing as a good convention that sidesteps a lot of ceremony, right? And this is, you get into one of the many things that people love about programming Python. It's just that natural flow. Like, you're not dealing with a lot of those static constraints. Right. When hiking the other day, I thought of an analogy, though. Bolted connections in a steel erection, you can tell the guys in architecture, right? Right. Uh, Are kept loose and then tightened after all the members of a building or some large section of it are in place. These are dynamic connections that become static. Huh. Well, you know, welded connections are just static from the very start. And some connections are designed to move often in outside relation to outside forces like tolerance to earthquakes and things. Yeah. So to flog this analogy a little further, we conclude that we want our APIs to remain dynamic while we're developing, and then only at the final stages do we make everything rigid. Okay. That's, that's, I just thought that was cool thinking. That's pretty smart. Yeah, that's pretty clever. 
yeah, I agree, Pete. That's cool. And admittedly, this is a little stale, and I, I'm hoping Michael will talk to us about what the state of Python is today while we're busy talking about conversations going on four years ago. Uh, but thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin and he's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. Change the state. <laughs> You're going to raise an event to it? Okay. Uh, raise an event to us. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, Michael Kennedy is here, and uh, he is a Python guy. He, in fact, he's the founder of Talk Python Training, where developers can learn Python via online courses. And he's the host of two popular Python podcasts, Talk Python to Me and Python Bytes. That's with a Y. <laughs> Bytes. <laughs> That's it. We're changing the name of the show to .NET Bytes. <laughs> He's a Python Software Foundations fellow. He also was primarily a .NET developer for 15 years, spending much of that time teaching C# Sharp and .NET at Developmentor. You can follow him on Twitter via at @mkennedy. Welcome, Michael. Hey guys, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, man. I can't. I think that show in 2015 was probably the last time we talked about Python. Don't you think, Richard? Mm -hmm. Uh, pretty close, yeah. I mean, we, it comes up every so often in, in various other, you know, talking about data analytics and ML and stuff where it often is in the ETL side. But uh, yeah, yeah, a dedicated show on Python is relatively rare in, in this world. Also a great language for teaching programming, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. Python has become one of the most common, if not the most common, first year programming languages at many universities throughout the world. Yeah. And a lot of places like France have made it part of the curriculum across the board and, and stuff like that. It's it's definitely growing in the teaching space, which I think gives it a good foothold. But there, there's some interesting features that make it something professional developers continue to use after they're done with that first CS course. Mm. Yeah. So what is it about Python that makes it so, you know, so accessible and, and so easy to learn programming with? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've interviewed you know, hundreds of people on my various podcasts. And many of these folks are not CS type people like we are. They're biologists, particle physicists, philosophers, and they, they are drawn to this language and it, they're doing incredible things with it. And so I've been thinking, of course, why, <laughs> you know, why does that work for them? Why are they not grabbing C++ or whatever? Yeah. And I, I, I'm trying to define this term. I don't know where it really fits, but I call Python a full spectrum language. Hmm. And ah. what I mean, yeah, and what I mean by that is it's incredibly approachable to, let's just pick on biology, a biologist. You know, she's in her lab, she's got this data, Excel is giving her headaches, and she's like, all right, well, how in the world am I going to work with this to do my research project? I've got like 100,000 various samples and all this data, right? It's the standard tools are usually not enough. So yeah. they decide, I've got to go use some programming language. And Python allows people like that to do just enough programming. Okay, so they don't have to even define a function. They can just say, I'm going to use this library. It understands this format. Then I'm going to use this thing that can, you know, aggregate it. Then I'm going to use this other library that graphs it. And they just put that, you know, in like 10 lines of code and boom, they have their answer. So it's not like C++ with headers and compilers and linkers or C-sharp with public static main void and all that stuff. 
as a regular developer, it's not really that big of a deal to have a namespace and a program and a static class and all that. But as somebody like I was describing, that's a huge challenge, right? They're like, I don't want all this stuff. I just want to, I just want to understand my data. Right. And so you can get started, right? So that's the, the beginning part of the full spectrum. But on the other hand, YouTube is built with Python. Instagram is built with Python. Reddit is built with Python. What? You can build these. Yeah. Yeah. YouTube, YouTube does millions of requests Python. a second. Yeah. Yeah. It runs on Python. And uh, the, it, there's an interesting history there, actually. But Python has all the, the rich CS things you would expect. It has object-oriented programming. It has things like generators. It has something kind of like Link, not quite as good. It has, uh, you know, a lot of these cool features that the professional professional developers need and, and use. But the difference mm. is a lot of the programming languages that are like that, C Sharp, Java, C++, and so on, they kind of ex expect you to take a lot of it on at the beginning. Whereas Python, it couldn't be simpler, right? It's just like, I don't even need a function. I'm just writing a few lines, consuming some stuff. So that's what I mean by a full spectrum language. So I think there's all these folks who don't consider themselves programmers who get sucked into it and then they grow and grow. And then all of a sudden they're using... Um, computer vision to understand like ancient philosophy or something crazy uh, like that. Wow. And they're like, wait, I'm not a programmer, but look what I'm doing. Now, I mean, I would not compare uh, Python and C sharp, C plus plus. I would think that the, the language that would be that sort of falls in that same category would be JavaScript. Yes. And that's also super interesting. I think JavaScript does fit that realm for, for whatever reason, Python has a bunch of more scientific libraries. The scientific mm -hmm. stack is stronger in Python than it is in JavaScript. And so I think, you know, part of the appeal is the simple language. The other part of the appeal is I can go grab this library that understands this complicated format in biology and it just turns it into programmable data right. structures, mm. right? I think that's a really interesting insight, Michael, that it's the library relationship that's more important than the language itself. I think people generally want functional, imperative, uh, dynamic. When you're just quote unquote scripting, I just need a little code. Right? I'm not worried yeah. about the sustainability of the code or the shareability of this code. But then you go to the libraries, and when you think JavaScript, you're looking at libraries that are about client-side development in the web. And when mm -hmm. you go look at libraries in Python, it's data analytics, and it's mm -hmm. scientific notation, and it, it's that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many different scientific disciplines with many folks contributing back to it. You, yeah. know, you have... Uh, NumPy, SciPy, which is a, a bunch of um, scientific libraries that you can use to do all sorts of things like, you know, fast numerical computation or machine learning or whatever. So, you know, the other reality of today is that people don't necessarily think about what we used to think about back in the 90s, which is, is it compiled or is it, you know, interpreted? How fast does it perform? You know, like those kinds of things we just aren't really thinking of these days but since we're talking about it how fast does it perform <laughs> <laughs> well you can make it look really good or you can make it look really bad and this is this is the paradox of talking about performance i do agree that you don't care about performance until you do care about it right yeah. like it's <laughs> oh it's fine we're just doing this thing it's so easy wait it takes two days that's not going to be okay yeah. <laughs> you know right. so at some point you you do care and what's really interesting about python in terms of performance is if you just were to say like write a loop and increment a number that would be massively slower in python than it would be in.net i don't know what the right. numbers are but they're multiples they're not 
you know, fractions of <laughs> a percent or some ratio, right? That's less than one. It's a lot, lot slower. However, like libraries, like I just mentioned, NumPy, those are written almost entirely in C. And so okay. when you work, if, if I've got a, a lot of numbers, I need to do like matrix multiplication or something like that. I would load that data into this library. It was just kind of like the, uh, the C interop with C sharp, like managed C++ style. You would pass that data down to the C layer and then all those operations happen in C. So if I say this thing times that thing and they've got 100,000 rows, I don't do that in Python. I do that in C. But as far as I'm concerned, I wrote Python code and it happened quickly. Nice. Right, so it's no different than the dot net framework, which is largely written in C, C plus plus. Yes, yeah, yeah, for sure, hmm. for sure. I think the big difference is the the final little bit that you write is also JIT compiled in in dot net and it goes quite a bit faster. But honestly, what you end up with is something that looks a lot more like orchestration of fast libraries. Oh, okay. I get well, that. I mean, I would also argue the people you were describing that were grabbing Python would never ask the question about compilers because they don't know to ask it. True. Yeah. Like it's only programmer people that think about that problem. And even then it's only because we're old <laughs> and that used to be a problem. Well, I'm thinking if Google liked it enough to use it for YouTube or, or YouTube was built with it before Google, I don't know. You know, Michael, but uh, it... So the, the, story, the story goes uh, from what I've read, gosh, Mike Driscoll wrote this book that interviewed a bunch of people in the early days of Python. It's kind of like the history of Python. Not, huh. a, not to the degree that you're thinking of with dot, dot .net, more like historical stories, uh, Richard, but mm -hmm. with your book, which is going to be so exciting. But he interviewed some folks around YouTube, and the, originally Google had its own video product, I believe, which was called Google Video, and they were doing that in C++ with like 100 engineers. YouTube was a little startup with a bunch of folks doing it in Python, and they were just adding feature and feature and feature faster than the C++ guys could. Sure. So Google fixed the problem by buying them. Oh, I see. Remarkably effective strategy. <laughs> so I think that's how YouTube, uh, how Python got into YouTube. Yeah. Okay. So, but I guess if you know Python is a fast enough language for the people who built YouTube, and it obviously is a very scalable uh, site, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah, and Instagram as well, right? There's there's oh, quite geez, a few. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Reddit. Reddit probably even more, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. Reddit's interesting because Reddit the website is is written in Python and this thing called SQL Alchemy, which is like Entity Framework. But what's interesting is you can actually find an archival open source version of reddit.com. Wow. So if you want to go check out how they did it, you can just go grab the the source code. I, I can give you the link. I don't remember off the top of my head where it is, but yeah, you can go find it. So how does the Microsoft ecosystem interact with Python? I think there's a couple ways in which it interacts with Python. You, you started talking about that, that comment, which I found pretty interesting. And the, the type hints are super interesting these days, the type annotations and, and the architecture analogy. But also you talked about Iron Python. Iron Python is a little bit, it's lost a little bit of its uh, sponsors, I guess you would say. I don't think Microsoft is putting uh, any energy behind it. They kind of just let it go and whoever wants to catch it, they catch it. There's another thing called python.net. It's just github.com slash python net. And that's a pretty good way that's up to date. Okay. And yeah, and I guess this is part of the challenge here is there's many incarnations of Python. Like we only think about C Sharp coming from Microsoft. 
But that's right. not how Python is, right? There's a lot of different implementations. There are a lot of different implementations. Python.net is a managed uh, Python? Python for .NET is a package that lets you integrate with the .NET runtime. So, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's hosted uh, Python, but then it can interop into .NET. Is that how it works? Yeah, so basically you, you can do things like import CLR or from system import string, right? Like the, the types of things. And even in your code, you can say add a reference to system.windows.forms and then like start working with those types of things. So basically, if you want to get access to the base class library from Python, that's something you can use. But, but it doesn't compile to IL itself, does it? I don't think so. No, it doesn't. Um, okay. I don't think so. I haven't, I haven't tried to write anything in earnest with it. Well, they're, they're quite explicit, like in the, in the second paragraph of the description of Python.net, it says it does not implement as a CLR language. It does not produce IL. Yeah, which is different than, than Iron Python, right? It tries to be more of an interop uh, story. Well, that's interesting. And wow, it just speaks to the many flavors of Python that are out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sure does. So I think another interesting area where Python and the .NET story can come together is probably around Jupyter Notebooks. Are you familiar with these Jupyter Notebooks? No. So Jupyter Notebooks, this is something that originally was called IPython Notebooks because they were interactive Python notebooks. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it comes out of the scientific computation, uh, computing space like... If you ever use MATLAB or Mathematica or one of those types of things, you've got like this, this interactive screen where you type stuff, you see a little bit of output, you type some more stuff, you see a little bit of output, and you can just kind of explore your data. It's, it's a lot like that. It's very different than writing a, an application with a bunch of different code files and then you run it. Uh, so that's become extremely popular. And that's probably the biggest way that the data science or the biologist type folks come over to Python and work with it. Like they don't often have a code editor in the traditional sense. They have this interactive notebook type thing. Uh, it's, it takes a while to get your head around as a sort of traditional developer. But once you get the Zen of it, it's, it's pretty cool. And actually the, I think at, at Ignite, they were showing off F-sharp running in these things. So I think Microsoft mm -hmm. has taken over uh, some, some open source project that is actually allowing the .NET libraries to run in there as well. And then, of course, there's Visual Studio Code, which you can use to write Python, right? Absolutely. And Visual Studio Code, Visual Studio Online, which is kind of remoted Visual Studio Code yeah, or something, which is, up. those things are, yeah, those things are all super cool. And you know what's interesting? Visual Studio Code is just taking off. One of the questions I ask at the end of the Talk Python to Me episodes is always, if you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? Four years ago, Emacs, Vim, these, these what? sort of... Um, Emacs? I, I, yes, yes. So, I, I hear you, man. So and I'm with you. I, I, I did that like in the 90s, but I haven't been doing that for a long time. But yeah, a lot of folks said that. I, I'm just really shocked that, you know, people who go to go to Python because they want to be shielded from all the CS stuff are using one of the most, you know, technically difficult editors to learn. Yeah. You, uh, you want to know how to create a random string. Okay. 
startup VI, yeah. put a first year computer science student in front of it and ask him to edit, uh, to exit. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> there you go. No, oh, seriously. I, uh, I thought you said you asked uh, him to exit. <laughs> Same problem. <laughs> That's right. So a lot of the folks that had that answer, they were not really in the biology type of story. They were more like web developers and stuff. And their motivation had been, or for some folks still is, kind of the least common denominator, which doesn't appeal to me, but the sense that I'm working on my machine and then I need to remote SSH over to a server and I want to be able to have the same editing experience there as I do locally. Yeah, so I yeah. can just fire up, you know, Emacs or something. And that's that's fine. I'd rather kind of maximize my local experience, but that, that's all fine. But the, the reason I bring this up is that used to be the story. The story now is more than any other option is Visual Studio Code in the Python space. That's really interesting. Although, and it, there's the Jupyter Notebooks, which is an interesting place to code. And the big announcement at Ignite was Jupyter Notebooks on Azure, that part of your Azure subscription included this thing. I, I just think this is fascinating from the perspective of, it's sort of like edit continue all the time, right? Which was, you know, this is a, that's a very visual studio thing. Yes. Yes, mm. it's true. That's a good point. Yeah. It's it's even crazier than edit and continue because you can go back in time and edit and then go back forwards in time and have those yeah. consequences applied, sort of. It's it's crazy. You're right. But what I like, you know, we've always had this sort of sandbox area to explore. What Notebooks does is formalizes that. You save that thing as its own notebook yeah. and can jump right back to that work again. Mm. Yeah, and there's some projects to productionize that a little bit. In mm -hmm. some interesting ways. So Netflix is using this thing called Paper Mill. And what it does is it lets you treat these notebooks that normally you just, you can, you know, put pictures, you can put text and then code and it computes a little data. Normally you just kind of work through it like a, a presentation and you understand it. But those Paper Mill things will let you take inputs and outputs and you can chain them together and use them for automation. And what's interesting is if they fail you can have the notebook retain its failed state, almost like a in-point in time, like snapshot of a, a crash. And you go open that notebook and go, why did this not work? Uh, here's the crash. What are the values? Because it's all stored, like historically in there from the last run. It's brilliant. Hey, I keep seeing these mentions of Python 2.7 and 3.5 plus. <laughs> that seems odd, right? Like there's some... Something happened in the middle there <laughs> that nobody wants to talk well, about. And nothing ever <laughs> happens like that with versioning in the Microsoft <laughs> Goodness, no. space. Never. Goodness, no, of course. Or <laughs> the Arby yeah, well, 1x to You know, right, or, right now in the .NET space, there's the .NET framework and there's the .NET core and they're kind of yes. separate. And there's this yes. grand unification coming, right? So that's kind of the, the analogy maybe I would draw there in a sense that... There obviously have been diff many different versions of the Python runtime and right. the standard library, base class library equivalent. For historical reasons, the switch from two to three was much harder than the folks involved expected it to be. They right. were going along for 15 years, something like that, and said, you know what, there's some stuff that's really messed up here we need to fix. Like, uh. for example, you could have a string that is bytes or you could have a string that is or you could have just a thing that is bytes, right? It doesn't understand things like encoding. There's a few other weird things about creating classes and uh, catching exceptions and whatnot. And they said, these few minor things, we're going to fix those and we're going to you know, 
break from the old way and have a new way of doing it. And it turns out there were so many libraries and such large code bases written in it that there were serious challenges converting that they just didn't expect. For example, um, I believe JP Morgan Chase is working on converting 35 million lines of Python 2 code to Python 3 code. Wow. And uh, they're, they're making good progress. They're getting close, but they're, you know, it, that's a massive undertaking. They actually did a presentation about that a little while but ago. The point, and the point being that the jump from two to three was a breaking jump. Yes, it was a breaking change. They said... And a non-trivial amount of two code just kept being used. Right. And they said, look, we understand that this is going to be a break, but let's just make a clean break and we'll just fix some of the things. The challenge really turned out to be that there were many libraries that people depended upon. You know, my biology example, hey, I'm going to grab this library that understands that data format. Well, if they don't take the effort to upgrade that library and my program depends on it, I can't right. move unless there's you're an alternative. You're not going. And yeah. That, yeah. You're and that's what's created this. There's actually been a long stalemate, but that's pretty much done, which is the good news. So, But the counter pri price now is, and I'm looking at paper mill because you mentioned it, is they're saying, hey, well, this library supports 2.7 and 3.5 plus, which means they're basically writing two, writing, maintaining two versions of paper mill. And they're yes, only going to do that until the end of life for Python 2 in 2020. Exactly. And that's coming up really quick. That's January 1st, 2020. So wow, finally, yeah. it's, it's been the libraries have moved, been moving over. So it's, it's been actually a big trauma in the Python space. But finally, I can tell you the story is, is really good. The, almost everything that matters is, supports Python 3. And many of them, like Papermill you're talking about, is dropping support for Python 2. So for example, NumPy, this library I talked about, they said, we're not going to support Python 2 anymore. It's just too much work to have these two versions. Let's get on with the future and let's just go. Uh, similarly, with the most popular web frameworks, at least one of the most popular with Django, they dropped Python 2 support. It made their code base smaller. It's easier to get contributors to the project because now you have to only understand one version of Python. Mm. You have to only write right. one version of tests and so on. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about the features of Python and, and what programming it feels like and looks like. But first, we have to pause for this very important message. Hey, Carl and Richard here. We'd like to tell you all about the upcoming conferences NDC is hosting all around the world. NDC London will be January 27th through the 31st. Go to ndc-london.com to register. We're going to be recording some episodes there. Come see us in the fishbowl. NDC Security Oslo is January 22nd through the 24th. Early bird discount for NDC Security Oslo is December 2nd. Go to ndc-security.com to register. And check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. And I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. And that's Michael Kennedy. We're talking Python for .NET developers. And uh, just because, you know, being a guy who's never written any Python, and I've occasionally seen some Python, I have no idea what what this is all about. Is, uh, is it like a curly brace kind of C-ish language, or is it freeform? What's the structure of the code? Let me, let me speak as if I was a C-sharp developer, how this, this feels, huh? Perfect. What do you think? So, it feels weird at first. You <laughs> go here, and this is a language... You know, maybe because you've done a lot of Visual Basic.net, you'd feel a little bit less uh, funky about it, but right. it has, it, it doesn't have semicolons, it doesn't have curly braces. Okay. So the way you define 
blocks of code, like a loop, is you would say while some test colon indent four spaces, write all the code in a loop, and then when you're out of the loop, you unindent. Indenting, now that sounds as yes. So white space matters. Indentation and white space is what defines the code structure. Oh no. The yeah, I, the whole, the, it, it sounds really, really tricky. I'm right? horrified. So it sounds like, yeah, it sounds horrified, <laughs> horrifying, horrifying. And but the thing is, when you use something like Visual Studio Code with a Python plugin or PyCharm from JetBrains or some of these really good editors, you don't notice it at all. Yeah. It so just you happens. know, if, yeah. So if if I was in C sharp, I'd say while open parenthesis, some statement, close parenthesis, curly brace, enter, and it would automatically indent. You're right. You're right. right. It, it would do that, and you would type, and then you would come out, and it's just like that. So you hit, you know, you hit the structure, and it just pulls it in. But by that same token, the same way you have to hunt a missing semicolon in a complex piece of C sharp, mm. you probably have to hunt a white space mistake in a piece of complex Python. Yes, and it does get tricky. In that regard, I do think it is slightly... Harder. So, for example, what you could do in the C sharp example you're talking about is you could just format the whole document and see where it went wonky, right? You're mm -hmm. like, uh, oh, here, look, it went really crazy. Like it way over indented this because there's a missing curly brace or something. You can do that in Python as well, but it it's not as obvious because it'll cr probably correct it to something that might be valid, but not what you want. So, in Visual Studio Code, I imagine it does a pretty good job of giving you squiggly lines and telling you where you need to do something. Yeah, I think the prop, the modern editors, which I would put probably that as VS Code with the Python plugin and uh, PyCharm, I, those are absolutely make it completely, completely clear. Okay. So that part is a little bit funky because it's just so different than curly braces and semicolons. But once you get over it, it's actually much more similar than people would probably think. Okay. You can't you can't have dynamic code with no types as the comment at the opening of the show talked about, but you can also put type hints, hints in there. Type hints or type annotations are called. It's similar to what you get by uh, sort of upgrading JavaScript through TypeScript. Okay, that makes sense. And uh, yeah, the difference with that is with TypeScript, it actually runs through like a compiler transpiler thing, and then something else comes out. With Python, it runs exactly what is there. It just ignores those hints. But you can run it through like continuous integration that says, oh, you're using an invalid type here. Or your editor will like scream that, no, you're passing a string where an integer is expected or, or something like that. Mm. So it's not as, it doesn't have the same effect that TypeScript does, but the zen of what TypeScript does for JavaScript, the new type annotation things can do for Python. It occurs to me that the place where this would bite you is in cut and pasting code. Mm-hmm. Who does that? <laughs> <laughs> from from Stack Overflow? It's Never. Almost, it's yeah. almost like a dirty little secret of programmers, you know? We go to Stack <laughs> Overflow, we see something, copy, paste, compile. <laughs> hey, it works. Yeah. I don't yeah, know yeah. why, uh, but it works. I mean, that's an important professional skill, understanding Stack <laughs> Overflow and Googling really well. Like, it's a joke, but it's also true. <laughs> John right? Skeen Dunright has is therefore powerful. programmed everybody's apps. Everybody's, <laughs> he should get credit for it's programming anyway. everything. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, yeah, it, it needs to be the top of absolutely. every C Sharp class library with thanks to John Skeet. <laughs> with thanks to John Skeet. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to derail you there. No, it's all right. It's, you know, it gives me a chance to bring up an interesting thing about Stack Overflow uh, and, and Python here. So, 
There was this cool uh, blog post analysis written called The Incredible Growth of Python by the data scientists over at Stack Overflow in mm. 2017. And they were talking about how just about then Python was just about to surpass JavaScript and become the most popular language yeah. by questions over there. And uh, since then, it's it's completely blown through all the other languages. And it's by far the most popular language on Stack Overflow. And this and was from 2017. And, and it still mm -hmm. um, is, well, okay, we can't say it's more popular language, but then the number of questions on Stack Overflow concerning Python has overtaken, right. overtook JavaScript in 2017. Yeah, which makes it, I think that's pretty interesting, right? Uh, mm. that, that it has done that. And what's also interesting is back in 2012, it was way down at number four or five and just going flat. And then it's like something hit the afterburner in 2012 and took off. And you know what? It, I, as far as I can tell, that is around the data science story. Yeah, uh, that's that what I would say. when data, data scientists really came over. Yeah. You know, what's interesting here. It's based on Stack Overflow question views. So this isn't questions. So, you know, a cynical person might say, well, that's because uh, Python programmers uh, <laughs> are, don't know enough about Python. So they're asking the same question over and over again. But, yeah, um, but that's not true. This is on, you know, searching for answers and viewing the questions so it's clearly about interest yeah so it's it, people it who is. are learning to program in python know how to use search engines yes <laughs> well said richard <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right so i, I don't know for me the story at least to the audience listening here is not so much that well what you should do is you just should go learn python and forget the c-sharp thing no i think there's that this the, the tools and the story of Python is just another cool thing to add to your toolbox as a .NET developer. Sure, there's sure. Cool there's cool integration into the .NET class library. There's these Jupyter Notebooks are now both really popular with Python, but also possible in, in the .NET CLR languages. So I think, it's, I think it's a really positive thing to learn. And there's a lot of super close analogies once you get past the surface differences of like, wait, you're not writing semicolons. What's wrong with you? Yeah, that's just syntax, right? I, I, yeah. I think more and more we're getting more comfortable with the idea that there are different languages good at different things. I mean, C, SQL, and, uh, and you should just use the best language for the problem space in front of you. Yeah, you know, I remember right. what being a VB programmer, right? And then going to C-sharp, it seemed like a lot more ceremony to use curly braces and semicolons everywhere. And I, I remember Chris Sells saying, you know, every time I have to do a demo in VBNet, I, I do a little comment and then put a semicolon at the end of the line just to make myself <laughs> feel better. And there's this like psychological thing about once you do a curly brace language like JavaScript or C-sharp or C++ or whatever, it, it feels like, you know, you you can contain your thoughts within those curly braces. Do you know what I under, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah it, I know exactly what you mean. And it's you know, a I, visual I, moniker for something that's going on in your brain that actually keeps you focused on scope. Well, if it makes people feel better, technically you can end your lines with semicolons, <laughs> and it's kind of like a continue uh, uh, an extra termination if you want to shorten up the number of lines in your file. So you could <laughs> technically put semicolons at the line end of your Python lines yeah. if you want. But, you know, I, I talked about how it feels a little bit uncomfortable when you first get started, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had this this experience. I'd done C-sharp for many, many years. And 
yeah, it was a little bit weird. But then a couple of weeks I had to come back and work on a C-sharp project, put the Python project I was working on away. And all of a sudden I felt like, why am I writing all these symbols? For example, <laughs> if statements don't have parentheses around the test. I always just thought, well, I have an if, then I put the parentheses around the test because right. it has to be that way. But you know, honestly, why does it have to be that way? It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of stuff like that where you're like, why am I putting all these things here? And actually, I stopped doing them for a few weeks and it, nothing broke. It was fine. And now all of a sudden I feel overwhelmed by symbols. And it was a really weird experience, but it's something that I, I learned to love, actually. It, but it took a while. So let's talk about some of the other things C-sharp programmers are very used to in their languages, just like, say, async await. Yes. So C-sharp's a, a nice language, right? They've done a, a good job with it. I think, especially up until C-sharp 3, which brought along Link and all those things, C-sharp 2 with yield, return, there was just yeah. be beautiful, right? There's, there's a lot of the stuff that's, that's kind of nice, but that the first few years was really incredible. And so when you think about, well, would I want to work in something like Python or any other language, what am I going to miss? You know, whenever you think if I'm going to work temporarily or permanently in some other technology, it's like, what am I, there are things that I love here. And if I give them up, I know I'm just going to day after day going, I can't believe I still can't write, await this thing. You know what I mean? And <laughs> so one of the things I did when I first started moving from uh, C sharp to Python was to sort of make a list. Like, all right, well, what is super important to me? And, you know, async and await were certainly on that list. And Richard was talking about Python 3.5 here and there. And that mm. probably, not necessarily, but probably is because that project is using async and await in Python. Mm, and right. so Python has async methods and it has await some async asynchronous method, asynchronous coroutine to get the value back. Hmm. It's really, really similar to what you have in C-sharp. So when you, you think about like this async and await world and IO driven concurrency, it's almost identical in Python actually. Hmm. That's great. Nice. Which is cool, right? Yeah, it's really cool. There's another part that's not as cool because the computational type of parallelism doesn't work quite as well. Hmm. in python so if you're thinking i i've got 12 cores and i want to do a bunch of work that is a little bit harder in python and there's some more hoops you have to jump through but there's some cool libraries you can plug in like this one called unsync un sync okay. uh, and it's 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 written by a guy that came to python from c sharp and said i need to fix a few things about this async and await implementation hmm. and what's incredible is the whole library is 126 lines of code and it unifies like four APIs and it just makes them huh. perfect. It's like, it's ridiculously effective for how many lines of code this guy wrote. So anyway, if people are moving, they should move with unsync, not with just the raw stuff that's there. Huh. Wow. I love it. That is cool. And, and of course there's a, um, JVM version of Python called Jython, right? Is that still a thing? Yeah, I believe so. I don't think it's gotten a lot of updates. I haven't been tracking it a lot because Java, so I don't do a lot of Java. But I, I know that there's some big companies using it for you interesting things. You don't do a lot of Java? <laughs> no, not, not too much. <laughs> Did, you, you some JavaScript? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't do a ton of Java, so I don't track it real carefully. There was Iron Python, but like I said, it's, it's still around, but it's not getting the same level of attention as it did originally. There's 
PyPy, P-Y-P-Y that Richard mentioned, which is a sort of JIT compiled version of Python mm. that it can be faster. It's, I say sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, because it, it starts out the same way that regular Python does as it interpreted. And then it sees where it's spending a lot of time and then it turns around and JIT compiles those parts. So it's, it's a little bit interesting okay. in that regard. All right, so yeah. we got to talk about web frameworks because you mentioned yes. Django, but there's a whole bunch of these in the Python world, right? <laughs> there are so many, and it's kind of dizzying, to be honest. When you come from the .NET space, you're like, all right, what are we going to do? Is it MVC or is it web forms? Yeah. Eh, probably not web forms these days, but you know, maybe uh, traditionally it was. And, right. Right. Is it going to run on .NET Core? Is it going to not run on .NET Core? Is it going to run the main framework? Right. There's not as many choices. I know the, the Google RPC stuff is, is coming along as well, yeah. which is pretty interesting. But there's kind of like, well, we're going to start with some flavor of ASP.NET and roll with that. Whereas in the Python space, there's got to be at least 20 different options for the framework that you choose to build your web applications. Mm. So there's popular ones, Django, Pyramid, Flask, those types of things. These are traditional, they're very similar to ASP. P.NET MVC. Uh, Django has got a little bit more of the a web forms feel, a little bit, but not, not entirely. Then you've got a whole bunch of other ones that are optimizing for different things. Mm -hmm. You've got things like Starlet or Fast API that are like a lot of them are implemented way down low in C, so they can do really high level of concurrency like Go or Node.js uh, in terms of like asynchronous connections and stuff. You have some like Molten. Uh, where it allows you, uh, no, sorry, Masonite, see, this is a challenge. Masonite, where it has these little command line commands you can add to say, I like to add a new view to my method, or to my website, and it'll add like the view class, it'll add the view template, maybe mm. some JavaScript will get written, so you can kind of continue to build it over time. Right. And there's just so many different options, and it really, it's, it's a bit of a, a challenge for folks coming where you haven't had to have so, many, so much thought about the framework that you're going to use. So there's a cool place, not just for web frameworks, but for Python in general, called Awesome Python. Okay. Awesome-python.com. It's one of these awesome lists, which apparently was inspired by Awesome PHP. And what yeah. it is, is, it has a bunch of different categories. I care about caching. I care about audio or whatever. So like, if you click on caching, it'll have 10 or 12 different popular libraries that let you do in-memory caching or database-backed caching for, say, websites or something like that. Wow. There's just so much here. Yeah. And what's interesting is this is nowhere near exhaustive. This is, oh, cool. in order to get something here, it has to get a certain number of votes to appear. So there's a bunch right. of that didn't make the cut, list. which is crazy. <laughs> Yes, exactly, exactly. Carl, you asked about async and await. There's an awesome async Python or asynchronous Python list somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where, but it's all the libraries that are specifically meant to like deal with and enhance you know, async and await type of code. Mm, okay. There's just all these different lists out there that people put together. Love it. Wow. So what's the preferred database for Python? Well... <laughs> There's a couple of options. Uh, it seems like Postgres definitely has the momentum these days. You know, MySQL was pretty popular because it's open source and it's been around for a long time. But I feel like Postgres is really taking off. And, you know, you probably know more about Postgres than I do, Richard. And, and it always seems like it's just a bit more serious than MySQL is. Plus, you know, Oracle. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's <laughs> MySQL's uh, been uh, taken over or, or moved moved ownership, hasn't it? That probably changed a little bit of things as well. It's been orified. Yeah, it's living in the dark place. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. So the story around databases and, and Python is pretty interesting. There's a couple of libraries that play the role of what Entity Framework plays, right? Hmm. And to me... Probably the 80% case, you're not really sure what you're doing, you just use an ORM, right? Once you right. get to that edge case where like you're really doing a lot of high end stuff or affecting many records, right? Okay, ORMs just fall apart. But most people probably are best served just by create a couple classes, model your databases, and go. Yeah. Yeah. And so this, this is the same story in Python, right? Mm -hmm. We have SQL Alchemy. If you're not using Django or <laughs> Django comes built in with its own one that just comes as part of that framework. For working with it and they both have migrations which is really an important part of making orms successful otherwise you're going to end up with databases not in the same form as your class crash crash right right, right. yeah then django seems like it was the original like one of the first popular python libraries out there so it tends to be a sort of Swiss army knife of stuff in django that's a good point yeah django definitely is more of a swiss army knife and more and more the tendency is to bring a bunch of these little libraries together to make your thing, right? So, for right. example, in Flask, it doesn't, the other web, popular web framework, it doesn't talk about, and use this way to talk to your database. It doesn't even care how you talk to your database. It's like, and this is the part where your logic goes. You right, talk sure. to your database, you'll write it here, right? You know, so, uh, you know, you could work with MongoDB, you could work with Postgres and SQL Alchemy or whatever you want. And how about unit testing? What's the story there? There's definitely an MS test-like framework, which is pretty cool, right? It's got sort of uses inheritance and class methods and so on. I don't. It doesn't use the equivalent of attributes in the way the MS test mm -hmm. one does, but it's it's pretty similar. But there's another one called PyTest, and it's it's kind of interesting to think about. It does a lot of different things. So the MS test-like one is built in. The PyTest one is an external thing, and what's cool about this is you know a lot of times when i look at test code there's a lot of code duplication right like why why is it hard to write tests well because you write the same code 50 times and you've got to edit it 50 places if you make a change to your library you're testing or something like this right yeah yeah so pytest has this thing called fixtures and what you can do is you can create functions even generators like yield return type of things and you can create those functions and then you just say the name of them in your test. So if I have a, te if I have a function that says, uh, you know, create car test cars, I'm like testing a car dealership or, or just like car, car data. In my test, I could just have the word car data and then it would automatically run those tests, run those methods, get that result and pass it into my tests huh. for me. So it's kind of like dependency injection, but for your test nice. rather than the thing under tests. Yeah, neat. that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty interesting. So that's cool. that's quite different, I think. And it takes a while to discover because it's not obvious that it's there, but it's it's really handy to clean up your tests. And so does uh where do we deploy these things? Are there standalone servers? Are there containers? Do the, obviously the cloud platforms host Python yeah. websites and apps? Yeah, there's a lot of different layers that you can use. You know, you can deploy them to Azure websites, for example, if you want. Uh, you can deploy them. There's a lot of platform-as-a-service places. Google Cloud, I think, started out 
maybe one of their first, if not their first la- supported yeah. language was Python there. It's also a very popular language among IoT folks, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's some super interesting projects. Yeah. Mostly because the Raspberry Pis are li- Linux-based. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it runs really well on Linux. Obviously, there's actually been a ton of work done by the folks at Microsoft, and really in particular, a guy named Steve Dower, who is a Python core developer but works at Microsoft to make Python on Windows you know, on par with everything else, which is yeah, yeah. really great. So for example, you can go to the Windows 10 store and install the latest version of Python. Nice. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. And so that's really cool. So it, it works well on Windows as well. I don't know how many folks would say deploy it on IIS on Windows Server. I'm sure somebody has, but I, I don't know how often that happens. It, often it it's deployed onto right? Linux. You, you <laughs> yeah. do that via Django. Yeah, yeah. You've already got, you know, it, it runs so well on these really lightweight Linux servers. So you, usually it's deployed with something like Nginx and MicroWSGI or GUnicorn and some of the web servers, right? There's that world, they kind of separate the, the, the static file server from the worker process that runs the code, right? Like the ASP.NET worker process. Yeah. Well, y- y- it's interesting. You not only do podcasts uh, about Python, but you actually wrote a 10-hour, is it a 10-hour or 10-day course? What is it? 10-hour. Ten, 10-hour ten ten hour. course for .NET developers. Where can we find that? I, I did, and yeah, I've been working on this. You know, obviously, from this conversation, I've been thinking about this for quite a while, and I've done .NET for a long time, but I'm like, you know what? I, it's time to finally just sit down and, and, and write this out for folks. Whoever yeah. wants to learn how to be comfortable and effective with Python, if they have want to just take their .NET experience and just go, okay, I know what link is. How do I do that in Python? I know what Entity Framework is. How do I do that in Python? I know what yeah. MVC is. How do I do that in Python? So I wrote a course uh, called Python for .NET Developers that people can go check out. And uh, yeah, they can get that and they can take it. And uh, it kind of just lays this out step by step. So I have cool. a whole bunch of different projects written in C Sharp and Visual Studio. And then we kind of explore those and we create, you know, create a Flask website from scratch. We create a database and talk to it from scratch in Python, right? But it starts out as an age framework, right? So hopefully wow. that's really helpful for people. It's very cool. And do you charge for this course? Yeah, this one's 99 bucks. Oops. Easy. That's a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah, not, not too much. Not too much. Yeah. Wow, great. Yeah, thanks. And uh, tell us again where we can r- see that or reach it. Yeah, it's at talkpython.fm slash .net. So D-O-T-N-E-T. Awesome. Michael, thanks. This has been enlightening. I had no idea Python was so cool. I mean, I knew it was so cool, but all of these little features I didn't understand until we talked. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Carl. And I think the surprising thing for me as well is not that it has all these features, but there are actually so many of the parallel things that you really like in .NET. There's actually a really similar one in Python. So it's, Mm. it's a really comfortable place to be once, you know, you can stop writing semicolons, which is, I, uh, granted, that's kind of challenging. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you can still use them if you want to. It's okay. That's right. You put them there if you we'll want. Let you. We'll let you do that. All right. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, it's been great to be here. Thanks, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.